Hello, how's it going? Okay, today I am talking about Buy Then Build by Walker Diebel. Uh, this is published in apparently October 2018, so it's pretty recently. And it is uh, the subtitle of the book is uh, How Acquisition Entrepreneurs Outsmart the Startup Game. Uh, I came across this book because a guy on Twitter. I forget who liked it. Actually, I think it was probably the guy from the uh, Made You Think podcast, maybe Nate, Nat Ellison. Um, anyhow, I think he liked or retweeted. Um, or maybe it was this Jeffrey Harbour guy. I don't know. In any event, uh, he retweeted this uh, Brandon Lothridge, Lafridge at Lafridge. He is uh, he's a really good follow. Um, super interesting guy. Um, who basically was saying that the best way to accumulate, uh, I don't know if he said generational wealth or, or just the, the best way he knew to accumulate wealth was to um, be a, quote, acquisition entrepreneur, basically, and saying that the Small Business Association in America gives you 90% LTV, loan-to-value loans, if you want to buy a business. And he just did a great thread on um, on on why why this is and, and, and the revenue that it can spit out and uh, earnings and and everything um, and basically how to go about it and it made it you know made it sound kind of foolproof made it kind of sound like um uh, you know like almost like uh, not buying houses with no money down or something like that but um, you know kind of the similar equivalent to whatever some the real buying real estate or buying rental properties maybe in like the 80s or the 70s or the 90s um anyhow he's a, he's, a, he's a very interesting guy he has he had quit a private equity um uh commercial i don't forget sorry forget what we call it, being in um real estate private equity what the, the normal version of private equity um buying businesses and whatnot um he was in one of those firms and then he quit that and bought a business. And then he has also bought another business that is in, um, and he lives in Kansas city. So basically his wife runs one where they bought out a, like a home furnishings, a unique home furnishing store North of Kansas city. Um, that is, it's exactly kind of what this book is talking about where, um, you know, this person founded a business. They poured their entire heart and soul and life into it, and then they get older and they want to they want to sell it. And and this is where uh, this is where we step in, gang. Um, so yeah, buy then build is the name of the book. Uh, it was referenced referenced. It's by Walker Diebel. It was referenced by this Brandon Lofbridge guy uh, on Twitter who I was just discussing. And um, it's really compelling. So it's, I would say it's, it's a five-star book for sure. It's a five-star book if you're interested in this topic. It might even be a five-star book if you're not interested in this topic. It's all, uh, there's, there's no, there's, there's no um, filler. It, and, and it's so many different action points. And it's just, it's amazing. It seems like this is a, a wealth of knowledge that it would, take someone doing a lot of deals and just a, a lifetime to accumulate on their own. Um, so I guess the, and it's funny because I immediately, not me, I 
sent the tweet thread to a friend of mine and he tweeted back that um, I think he called them blank check companies. He's a very um, conservative guy. He's a, he's the guy that likes the millionaire mindset book and is, he works in the corporate world. I think he wishes he was probably an entrepreneur as we, as we all do. Um, but he was saying, oh, blank check companies have the same failure rate as startups. And I was like, well, no, actually, not according to this author, who's obviously, uh, you know, he's he, he's trying to start, uh, he has multiple businesses, and he's also tried to, it seems like he started a successful acquisition entrepreneurship program, but, um, but he's already, you know, whatever, bought and sold numerous businesses and seems like he's very successful and he doesn't need to necessarily be doing that. Uh, teaching, um, but uh, I was like, well, no, he that's he says that's basically the whole point is that these companies they have a cash they have a cash flow stream they have a they have a, they have a customer all of these things that startups are are, are looking to build and the startups have like a ninety eight percent failure rate or ninety nine percent failure rate um, and I guess the idea is that you that there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity in these companies and you basically you know they whether they they operate on legacy systems that have never been upgraded because the person didn't want to upgrade them i i, I know that i think with an uncle that was a uh had a medical practice or whatever you know they just like they didn't want to the day that was going to turn over where they the state was going to require them to do a different type of insurance acceptance and they just didn't or calculate insurance calculation they didn't want to do that so that's literally why they like sold the business you know uh they never upgraded maybe these companies never upgraded to lean business models or they never really refined the sales team and you're a sales genius or you know maybe you have a brother that does seo and they could just you could just plug them in there so there's just different ways of looking at these businesses and where they're at and I think the example that he gives multiple times is like a HVAC business you know so this is it also blends in quite well with the millionaire mindset the millionaire next door book talking about kind of blue collar businesses uh, I don't know if I have it in my notes here further on but uh, they talk about a bunch of uh, tech he talks about the tech VCs and uh, they wanted to get out of the venture capital game and they were success that they were apparently successful in and they wanted to do this acquisition entrepreneurship and what did they end up doing they ended up buying not nothing to do with tech nothing to do with any number of things that you would think would be sexier but a um, landscaping business that also did snow plows and so the whatever they ran the snow plows in the winter and then in the other months, they did landscaping and yard work stuff to keep them in touch with their clients. And they whatever built it into a, you know, a super successful endeavor. Um, and so I guess just getting down to brass tacks right away. And I guess the reason why this is probably most interesting to people if you are in the U.S. is... Um, is, is because of the Small Businesses Association loans. And so he says that, like, okay, fine. You know, you only have, uh, say you have $65,000. And for this, he does say this is $65,000. It's not including the working capital that you're going to be purchasing when you purchase the business 
or closing costs. And then we're going to assume it's a company that doesn't have any real estate assets. And so he says, okay, you take $65,000 that you have and uh, at 90% LTV, which is what these um, SBA loans can go up to, then you, you've got a um, $650,000 purchase price. And uh, these companies in this size, he says, typically sell for three times adjusted earnings. Uh, so that's... Uh, $216,000 and with a 15% adjusted earnings to revenue ratio that gets you to 1.4 million in revenue. Why is that important? Because he he really advocates um, not going for companies that have less than a hundred less than a million dollars in revenue because he just says that they're just like too they're too small and they're too flaky and they're probably not worth your time and I guess we're talking about like dry cleaners and things like that. He goes on to mention that he, a lot of different Harvard business case studies. And that's the thing that's interesting is saying that this, he's, he would say that this is not a very uh, taught way. Um, it's not like a taught methodology in many schools. It's really just like the University of like Pennsylvania and like Harvard Business School and maybe Stanford, I, I think, I forget. But it's that that's those are the schools that like really are at the forefront of this or really push this, which is kind of interesting because it's always, you know, it's always kind of the, as you get up the scale, you know, just people from lower economic, um, economic, uh, I guess families, demographics, whatever, they just don't know about whatever real estate or buying a family home or just whatever different things. And this almost seems like, kind of maybe like this other uh, uh, somewhat hidden avenue um, that only some are privy to in a certain way. Now, obviously, you have to have money to go invest in it, but I think there's probably a lot of middle-income people that whatever get an inheritance or something, and they never uh, consider whatever quitting their job and being an acquisition entrepreneur per se. Um, as he talks about these, he talks about... Uh, companies, I forget which book it was, but he talks about most gazelles, which is, I guess, the name for company. I'm sure if I, if I Googled that, I could find the paper of the book that he's referring to, but these are the companies that um, are dominant in their industries and are long-lasting, healthy, high-growth businesses. And he says that most gazelles, um, when they did this study or whatever, were 25 years old. So he's saying it doesn't need to be like a young startup, flashy business. Uh, and then he mentions the Jim Collins book, How the Mighty Will Fail. Side note, the Tim Ferriss interview with Jim Collins was is really good and worth as an episode worth looking up. I kind of, um, Tim Ferriss, despite being a huge influence on my life and uh, one of my favorite uh, people, uh, I, I don't really keep up with his podcast anymore. Um, for various reasons, I think that Sometimes the guests are, are not terribly interesting, um, uh, even though he, he does his, he does a good job. I, there was an article in, I think, GQ, maybe, that a friend sent to me talking about how he's, what the stage of life that uh, Tim Ferriss is at right now. And it was super interesting just talking about how he's kind of evaluates his day, and he talks about, like, 
how do you gauge being happy or how do you gauge being successful and um, how he's done it throughout his life. And first he was after money and then he's after time. And now he does it where, how does he feel when he wakes up? Does he feel good right when he wakes up in the morning? And then when he goes to sleep, how does he feel? And so if he feels good at both those times, he, he notices that and he thinks, okay, I'm on the right track, I'm doing good. And if not, then you really have to kind of ask yourself, hmm, uh, what's going on here? And I, I thought that was, I thought that was, uh, I don't know, it was uh, quite profound and something I plan to use and whatever, tell my friends and relatives, because I think it's, uh, you can get very hung up on that. And um, there's different things that you know you can do to make yourself happy when you wake up and happy when you, right before you go to bed. Um, so yeah, so that was the Tim Ferriss sidebar. And now back to buy, then build. Um, and so the whole, the whole crux, I guess, of the book, the jumping off part is, I guess, three things. One, if you buy a business, it's chances is, you know, better than a startup or better than a restaurant, you know, that all those the things that just hardly ever get to leave the nest and be successful. And then two, that we have these, uh, the Americans have these small business association loans where you can get, you can, you know, really leverage up and, and give yourself an opportunity. And then three, the idea that it, this is a once in the history opportunity um, that he says baby boomers own 12, own 12 million businesses in 2013. And by 2021, uh, there will be 11,000 baby boomers retiring every day. So that's obviously not just business owners, but, you know, they're flooding out of the market. So once in a lifetime opportunity. He says effectively 100% of non-retired millionaires are self-employed per the millionaire next door. So maybe that was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or something, but whatever bump, whatever a million was then, bump it up to... 5 million now or something like that. Uh, I think the same equivalent would be, would be true because you would think that a lot of 401k millionaires and uh, salary millionaires now would kind of skew those numbers. So you would need to inflate it a little bit. Uh, the other thing that's just really great about this book as a, as a, if you're, if you're a business major, or even if you're not a business major, it's kind of like a, um, it's the first book that I've, has kind of uh, not tested me, but has um, has really been kind of a it's a it's like an MBA in a box type of thing, or it's a you know really a, applying all of these different ratios and the cash flow statements and thinking about it, but at all at the same time, it all is very um, <clears throat> kind of stays you know near and dear. He stays close to the money, so it's. It's always it's always interesting. It's never abstract, uh, but at the same time, you know he's you're using he's using everything, everything that you can possibly um, might have touched on in your in your business education, formal or informal. He being the owner of a company, it's just a it's obviously your your. Um, you're pulling on all of those, all of those things. Um, and so he says the three fundamentals to keep in mind are return on investment, uh, your margin of safety, and then the businesses, when you're evaluating businesses, and then the upside potential of the business. So obviously you might have two of those, but not the other one. And 
Um, so just get, when you're looking at business, potential businesses to buy, evaluate those things. Um, very quickly, if you go on to a broker's website or these different kind of almost Craigslist for businesses, you'll very quickly um, encounter this measurement that they call SDE, which is important, whatever it is in the business, the, the lingo or of, uh, of this type of, this area, it's called seller's discretionary earnings. Uh, so the, er the earnings that are uh, after interest and everything is paid uh, come back to the, uh, to the business owner that he can then either plow back into the business or pay himself a salary or hire new people to grow the business, whatnot. He also goes into a cash flow breakdown that is it's easy enough to listen to on audiobook, but I can't really go into detail um, talking about it here. But it's just a, it's nice nice to know that he you know he constantly is, is showing the work and uh, putting everything out in front of you as far as uh, just how this I guess the cash flow breakdown that goes into SDE, which is kind of what I just described. Uh, he talks about the what the successful entrepreneur has. And he says it's a three-legged stool of attitude, obviously being positive, aptitude, having being smart enough. You don't have to be that smart, but you just have to be smart enough. And then action. So I think he says he yeah, has three A's. Uh, he mentions this mindset book that I've heard mentioned before. I think I might have even might even be in my Audible library somewhere. Um, I just haven't gotten around to it by Carol Dwell. And then I, it sounds like the same person also has a growth mindset for a kid's book, uh, which I'll have to check out. Um, this is when he's talking about developing the CEO mindset. He says to make a list of all your career accomplishments and what behaviors and successes and what behaviors drove those successes. And really to be in touch with, with the best things that you've ever done and your different various successes because that's what you're going to need to put on display for, for bankers in the future. Uh, he thinks it's very important, this is a big key for him, to set a time frame for finding a business and really try and hold your own feet to the fire uh, because that's where he says a lot of this fails is people just are constantly on the weekends or over their coffee break or whatever, perusing these um, websites of different businesses for sale, and that that is, uh, that that is really a road to nowhere. Um, there's a Harvard Business Review uh, article called How Fast Can Your Company Afford to Grow that is uh, all about how long cash is tied up in the operating cycle. Um, and then it was funny, I was just going to open my kind of spam uh, email account um, that I had used to sign up for uh, on his website. Um, so I wanted to try and see what, you know, materials, or if there's any quick reference guides that I could kind of use to uh, merge into this, but I, I couldn't find any. But I, so I went to Yahoo to get logged into my old email. And what do I see? I see... Um, the whatever they say, Pizza Boy sells. Uh, let's see, do I still have it up? Pizza Boy sells company, but I was like, what is that? I clicked on it, and it is um, this kid in the UK, or he was 19 years old when he 
um, founded Gymshark, which is now valued at over a billion. And uh, I, don't, I should, but I don't actually know the, the story of Gymshark. I just know that it, it popped. All of a sudden, it seemed like half the people in the gym were wearing it. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was super curious. And so it's just a huge success story. He's now sold a stake in it to... Um, who was it? Ben Francis, 19 years old when he founded it. Da, 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 da. Uh, the deal will value Mr. Francis's stake of around 70% of the company at more than 700 million. General Atlantic. No wonder I forgot the company that, that, that I guess bought the other 30% or 10% or something like that. Um, but there's an, an, another article that you could. Google, I think when I was looking for this cash, uh, how fast can your company afford to grow? It was recommended to me by Pocket or what the deal was. But it was talking about, it analyzed uh, Gymshark's uh, cash conversion cycle. I said it had like one of the best cash conversion cycles in in business that they've ever seen. And, um, and so basically it's just, uh, you know, when, when you get, when you get an order, Does that, you know, how, how much inventory do you have on hand? You basically, you pay your suppliers or maybe you get the supplies from your supplier, the inputs from your suppliers. And then, you know, do you have, do you pay them in 90 days? Do you pay them in 60 days? Gymshark, I feel like Gymshark was like paying them in like freaking, I don't know, 120 days or something outrageous. Um, and then obviously when you, when you sell the inventory, you get the money right away. Um, and so basically what that does is you just have like an ongoing, if you have positive flow, then you can, you can take different steps to grow the company with that cash you have sloshing around in the system. And then by the time you actually have to pay for your inputs, uh, you know, whatever, I guess you, you know, you've probably got, you've got an extra bit of growth, um, in the company, uh, just continually multiplying. And then that's just a self-fulfilling pro uh, process. Um, but yeah, my, my, my take on that was probably unnecessary. If you just uh, Google cash conversion cycle on Gymshark, you'll probably find that article. Um, talks about basically have your, one of the things you'll want to do when you're looking at companies is ask for income statements on a cash basis. Because basically you'll get them on an accrual basis. But if you really want to, evaluate a company to how you can improve this cash conversion cycle. You'll have to have them on, on a cash basis. Um, and then uh, I think it's, the idea is that take, take, look at when you're evaluating opportunities, I guess, evaluate your own um, attributes and your own things that you can bring to the business. Like I said before, like SEO or, or different things. Um, and, kind of how you can leverage your own skills um, in various industries or something, then that will affect maybe the scope of who you're considering. So there's a really interesting anecdote that maybe I should have heard before, but I hadn't. But So the guy, I think it was two University of Pennsylvania guys that founded Warby Parker, uh, which is obviously super successful. And, and I've, I've bought, I don't wear them right now, but I've, 
um, when I was younger, I, oh, man, I've probably bought like eight pairs of glasses from them over the years, or maybe not eight, maybe four, but, but then that just, uh, I started buying glasses online from other places too. Um, but I've always been very pleased with their, with their products and they really brought something to the market of like, cause before, before that, you know, you could only get, um, a pair of, I guess they call it a Crete or like plastic framed glasses. Um, either they looked horrible or, you know, you had to pay like $600 for just the frames and then another 500, 600 for the lenses and Warby Parker just really nuked that whole thing. So that was amazing. Um, but anyhow, the same guys, they founded Harry's, the shaving company. And so they just, they just went and bought a German, um, boring old German razor blade manufacturer and then put it online and you know, obviously, it just completely were the worst thing that ever happened to Gillette. Uh, so I was, I was a little bit gobsmacked. Uh, so those guys are obviously really sharp. So that's that's like a great example of, um, you know, maybe you have a, maybe you have an idea or you see a need that is uh, that needs to be an area opportunity that needs to be addressed, and maybe you you know about you know about online marketing or you know about the demographic that you want to approach, but you don't know how to like manufacture uh, razor blades from scratch or you don't want to, you don't know how to import them from China. Or you, I don't know. Some, some aspect of it. You could just buy a old boarding company in, in America or in this case in Europe and then leverage it. Um, sorry. I don't know if you can hear in the background of the idiots on the, motorcycles but uh yeah um excuse that it's it's august so the windows have to be open um and so yeah so he says how do you define your target you're going to define it by that um by that seller's discretionary income and uh you need to make a statement of my target is x basically the amount of SDE that you're going to be targeting is going to be limited by the amount of cash that you can inject into the company. And then you assume you have the different the SBA loan for whatever percentage. He says that, uh, that there are good uh, companies under 700,000 sellers discretionary income trading at a two to three and a half times multiple. Uh, the most attractive companies for individuals to buy are 250,000 to 700,000 uh, in seller's discretionary in annual seller's discretionary income. Uh, he references a site called the Business Reference Guide, which I just looked up before I got on here, um, and that's what it's called. It's literally businessreferenceguide.com. He says it's like uh, 20 bucks to subscribe to, or you can wait till to get it from a broker, but it's really worth. Um, all of the money because it's, it's the, I guess it's the kind of rules of thumb or what the going rate for revenue and profit margins are in whatever industry, whatever dry cleaning, HVAC, uh, snow removal or whatever. You can quickly look at a company you want to buy and then check this place and find out if they are below average or above average at different aspects. 
Um, so the whole point is that you're supposed to say, I, you're supposed to create a, I am looking for statement. I am looking for a company in this in one of five different industries with a SDE in this amount. Da, 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 da. Um, very importantly, like I said before, he says, skip the internet. And as far you're just wasting your time on these different sites and he compares them to like, yeah, sure. There's jobs on monster.com, but they're all like the crappy jobs and everybody knows that any good job is they've ever gotten is probably from um a referral or a recommendation from a friend or a, somebody internal at the company type of thing and once they can't they can't find anybody that way then yeah sure then they put it out on the website uh, he also says don't commit to one broker and don't depend solely on their listings because basically the idea is that once contact a lot of brokers and show them that you have ready money and that you're, uh, you know, whatever, whip smart and that you can close a deal and that they will end up bringing deals to you. Uh, meet every broker in your area. And then he says that they will be brokers slash intermediators. Intermediaries will be thrilled if you email them your personal CV or your CV and your personal your resume and your personal balance sheet after you meet. Uh, tell them you were committed to finding a deal in six months. I mean, yeah, this guy, he doesn't pull any punches. Obviously, you need to be thinking about uh, what kind of company you would like to run. Uh, he says 40% of the time, the author of the book, this Walker Diebel guy, 40% of the time, he submits a letter of intent within a couple days of reading the offering memorandum, uh, and 30% of the time within one month. And he says, what this does is, even if you've come in late to the process, or instead of waiting, instead of waiting longer, this just moves you straight to the, the head of the pack, which will be, prove to be an advantage uh, going forward. I have my notes here, don't have 150,000, and he says, basically, he also says, if you don't have 150000 then maybe you shouldn't be doing this. But with the side note that uh, uh, that you can just basically go out and say, okay, I'll sell 10% of the company, try and find equity, an equity investor to uh, buy 10% of the company for that 150000 which is interesting and, and quite ballsy. Uh, and he makes it seem quite easy. Um, so it's interesting, kind of a family and friends scraped together 150,000. Uh, there's a big component of if you are purchasing um, commercial real estate with the in the deal, then that's going to kind of change things um, and how you want to amortize that. I think I will, I took some notes on that uh, later on, uh, but if I don't, I'll try and make those points that I'm thinking right right now then um, the, the whole the whole hitch with this thing is it sounds great right 90% SBA loan um, he says that basically so but if you if your business fails and you can't pay your SBA loan then you lose your house so it's like a full full recourse loan and that's that's the whole thing is that it's it's uh, it is going against the value of the business and all of your personal holdings.
just little tips like he says like always use your own lawyer's docs uh, instead of the seller's lawyer's docs because basically you want you want your own lawyer's boilerplate to be on there and that and if they're you want them to be making changes to the documents that your lawyers are uh, familiar with um, back front and center instead of um, having to pay for your lawyers to get familiar with somebody else's docs one of the reasons why kind of out of the blue again he just says is stay away from companies that are under 101 million in revenue is he says that it's obviously not infallible but according to the chicago fed 88 percent of unhealthy businesses have revenues under a million dollars and he says well, obviously a lot of those are like bodegas and things that you would never be considered buying but it's just something to to think about to kind of help steer you uh, when he's looking at a company balance sheet and valuing a company, he basically just completely uh, devalues the intellectual property because uh, it's too hard to value. Uh, it basically says that you want to, if you're trying to model this, you're going to basically looking at their their uh, financial statements to break down what is the what is the revenue to gross profit margin, and then what is the gross to net profit margin. Um, And I think, sorry, which one was it? He's, he said that, um, he's, I think he said that he liked a company that had a high revenue to gross margin. Sorry, no, it was low. One of my, oh shoot, I can't think of this. It's been a little bit since I, I listened to this book, but basically the idea was I think that if the um, if the gross to net margin was uh, high, then basically you could basically you say, I think you're saying is that is in, it was it's easier it was easier to, it's easier to like cut costs and refine in the from the gross to net um, area than it is to like go out and get uh, new revenue uh, yeah so this is this is why this is doing these notes is, is and, and then trying to podcast them is actually good for me. It, 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 it flushes the entire book through my brain again. And, and as we know, the things I, I need to uh, look up. Um, so then basically you're going to, you're going to look at all the, evaluate those different margins, I guess, look at what's going on in the business reference guide, enter three financial statements into Excel, basically just model it up and um, then you're going to be intimately familiar with the numbers and you can look at all of the different line items as a percentage of revenue and, and see if is that is that good or bad as far as the industry is concerned you're going to want to get like um, three or five years of these statements as, as much as you possibly can so that you can try and find out what the revenue trend has been and then you also want to try and get monthly revenue try and find out you know what's what's happening throughout the year and if you're going to be high and dry uh, you want to make sure that no customer is greater than 10 percent of the revenue uh, get the number of employees find out what your revenue per employee is and how internally leveraged people are 
And then what I guess what's also key is when you're looking at this is asking yourself, will I be able to replicate what the previous owner did right to generate the same cash flow? Um, and do you have insights that the current owner doesn't have in order to increase these yields? Uh, first meeting with the with the seller, convince the seller that you are the best buyer for them. Don't worry, you're kind of like a job interview. Don't try and like find all the holes or, or spots in their company. Uh, just really sell them on you, and then later on down the road you can you can you can uh, you know get more into the nitty gritty. Uh, he references this Caleb Coburn historic Harvard and five negotiation styles and when to use them. Uh, he says it's basically meeting the seller for the first time is that it's a first date. Be nice and cool and interested. And then if there's tough negotiations later, then you're gonna just gonna, you know, you're gonna go through the broker. You're gonna you're gonna leverage them, make them work for their money. So it's kind of interesting. Um, and uh, basically you're trying to find out where the opportunities and risks are. And he talks about, you know, obviously the sellers and everybody's gonna throw up smoke screens when there's questions and areas that they don't really want to go into, their source subjects they don't want to go into the detail about. Um, so what he says is he asks the same question three different ways throughout the meeting. And if you get the same canned response every time, it's an area they want to avoid. And so you need to be sure to drill down in that area. I thought that was interesting. He says, uh, and this is just probably a good thing for to keep in mind in interviews um, that they can try and do this to you or if you want to do it in an interview with someone else. Um, but change question topics. So jump around and then come back later. Basically, you're trying to throw off the logic of the conversation. And if you do that, then you get more honest answers. So if you're asking whatever about the number of customers and the size of the largest customer, and then go and completely, you know, ask something about their back office situation and then come back to, um, you know, what, what would happen if you lost this big customer or something basically basically just yeah try to keep them uh, on their back foot which I, in order in order to get because uh, i guess they will just uh revert to honesty if uh and they, or, or they'll stutter and they won't be able to come up with a smooth lie uh because they're they won't have had that extra whatever 30 seconds or a minute to anticipate what they what they want their answer to be uh Whatever the skill, seller's skill set is will be an area that will need swift and direct attention by you because obviously that's where they were, whatever, swimming in the, in the what do you call it, in the stream. You put your canoe in the middle of the river or whatever, the, the where the flow is the highest. Um, it says if, there's a lar if there is a larger customer, make sure you find out, you know, why do they buy from your company? The best answer be related to the value proposition of the company um, or that they have a strong relationship with someone who will remain after the seller leaves. And then basically the worst answer would be that they, oh, I play golf with them or they go to the same church <laughs> as, the, as the seller, as the person who's going to be leaving the company. Um, and then you put the, the seller through the bus test. If they were to get hit by a bus, you know, how would company be able to function how much vacation did the seller take you know uh, did their spouse work at the company what did they do 
because y'all will be things that will be walking out the door as soon as you buy it. Not as soon as you buy it. He talks about like a, whatever, 90 days on site training and then three months of this and then, sorry, six months of, you know, like call up and stuff. But it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a line that you have to kind of walk. Um, what is the, what is the problem that is facing the business or the industry? What is keeping the seller, the current owner slash seller from uh, keeping and expanding the company? Uh, don't ask why you're, he, they're selling up front. That's the question that they just always get asked and just kind of pack that in for later. Uh, it says if the seller is bored, then chances are all the employees are bored too. Uh, there's just a lot of like little uh, tidbits that I like that he's obviously come up against uh, numerous times um, that I thought were just way more insightful than your average kind of like a boring business administration class. Um, who are the key people in the company? What what would they do if they were, and then you're going to interview them and say, what would they do if they were buying it? What changes would they make? Uh, if you don't like the seller, that may mean that the seller's kind of ethos has permeated the company and you may not get along with the employees or like the culture of the company. I thought that was interesting. Um, and then you're going to do the old Porter's five forces on the industry of the company. Um, uh, you're interested in purchasing after you meet the seller. Uh, he talks about how the nineties were the biggest decade for books since Gutenberg, uh, for book printing. And then it was immediately followed by the worst decade of the, which with the Kindle and whatnot. And so everything's obviously things, things crest and, they've peaked and then they go down. Um, you want to look at uh, the company's business strategy at the, uh, it talks about, I think, at the operational level, the financial level. I don't know. There was some, I think there's three different levels. Um, so that's probably key. You should probably look into that if you want to buy a company. Um, it talks about what is the company's specific special sauce that they've got that other people don't have. Um, and then he says uh, the art, the art of the, uh, the art of the pitch. He basically uh, he thinks it should be ten, ten slides that you're going to show to your banker. Basically, there can be more, but uh, but the whatever the key ten is, you keep it short and sweet, and and uh, uh, have every, you know every slide is important. Uh, if to, in order to help you do this, there's this Exponential Organizations book, which I meant to look that up, but I didn't, so I'm glad I took a note on it. Uh, it says that it, the letter of intent is either a real yes or a real no, or there's real next steps that need to be taken before you can get to a real yes or no. I think that was a quote from somebody else that he mixed in. Um, it says, don't when you're making an offer, don't buy cash. <laughs> <laughs> from the buy, uh, don't buy old inventory. He says he only buys enough inventory for the first 90 days. Uh, don't buy any accounts receivable over 60 days out without a guarantee. Um, and he doesn't buy, he tries not to buy the uh, real estate associated with the property because like maybe you'll find out you don't want to be you don't want to be um, married to that location or 
um, you know, maybe it's maybe it's run down and it's on his last legs and you don't want to be stuck with it. So basically what he does is he said he does a three to ten year lease with an option to buy at the end, trying to get the best of all worlds. Um, and then basically you just try to uh, give the seller what they need, you know, so do they want an all cash offer? Do uh, do they want a higher price? In which case you say, okay, fine, you know. Um, um, well, we can do a higher price, but that's just going to be predicated on everybody winning and me really taking off and flying with this company. And so we're going to put an earnout clause in there. Earnout, um, an earnout, earn not not a promote, but uh, yeah, just a, an an earnout in there where if whatever you get a certain amount, if I'm making over a certain amount, or do they want? continuing income for some reason that they did i don't know they don't want to take the tax hit and so then say fine yeah why don't you give me seller financing and then you'll get a, a loan payment every month um and so i guess this, this is what's also great about this book is that um you know obviously whatever i've uh was taught things or if I, you know you get into a certain what you do at, at your job and, and other areas of business kind of follow to the wayside and or maybe i thought i understood a certain aspect of business that maybe you're more well versed on and you can you're like and i'm stuttering and not able to connect the dots in the exact right way but you know um also i'm trying to recapitulate this you know you saying that you don't actually understand something if you can't teach it to someone else um so yeah so all around it's just a good uh it's just a good primer and a good reminder and a good refresher and and yeah, and hopefully I find a business that I want to buy um, and can really make sing. Uh, so it says, move fast once the seller has signed the letter of intent. Uh, because as soon as they sign that, they're going to they're gonna start sleepwalking. They're going to disengage and the company performance will suffer. So don't just, uh, don't just do DD forever. Uh, three, you want three to five years of tax returns. You want a non-compete from the seller saying they're not going to just go and start another dry cleaner next door, uh, 90 days on-site seller training and six months by phone, interview the key personnel and the key customers. Um, I think the customers, they say, was going to be the tricky part there. Um, okay, so we're at 46 minutes, so this thing cuts out after an hour, so I should probably either wrap it up or just be mindful of that and not, not lose all my good chat. Um, uh, let's see. Listen to the seller's reasons for why they're rejecting an offer. Like, again, do they want ongoing income? Do they want an upside? Yeah, like, uh, or an earnout. Um, uh, more money is fine, he says, as long as he has forever to pay them them that money or a seller financing. Uh, and he says all the proceeding was pre-signed. It was before. Uh, the letter of intent was signed. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me right now, but I, I remember thinking it was counterintuitive and I made the note. Or, um, yeah, I guess, uh, okay, pre, that's the pre-letter. He talks about how he gets an LOI so back to him so quickly. In any event, um, moving on to DD, he says the best way to conduct operational DD is to basically, an order comes in from 
customer and you just follow that all the way through the businesses and even if that means sitting down with Janet and you know in accounting or something like that uh, I thought that was interesting removing contingencies hmm. I forget what that's about but obviously if you listen to that uh, I think that's an important part but uh, yes maybe that'll jump out at you uh, between the signed LOI and the DD reach out to your network and see what would it take get a kind of a, he says get a soft close do a soft close on them you know what would it take for for them to become customers of your business because right then it's it's easy for them to kind of be honest because you don't own the business yet and they can say oh yeah sure I mean maybe I, I don't see why I wouldn't do that or you know I say oh actually you know I, I, this is my these are my reservations about dealing with that type of company you obviously can't say the name of the company but you can give a lot of other more generic details. And so he basically says on day one, what do you do? He says, go in there and just do an overall cleaning, paint the walls, clean your desk, sell off old assets, show the employees that you really care about this, this business and you're in it for the long haul. Uh, he says, basically your first month is just establishing a rapport with your employees and your customers. And um, he also says, make sure you track all those, so many bank accounts. Oh my God. I don't know about everyone else's work, but it's just like you hear the accountants talking. It's just bank accounts and different means. Bank accounts just set up galore for all of the different companies, and it's just mind-numbing. But basically track the bank accounts and invoices, and closing to make sure that make sure that you're getting all of the revenue and not the uh, not the previous owner and make a 13-week uh, cash flow projection. Uh, and he talks about have a Gantt chart for basically your, your goals and what you want to do with the company. And that seems like a kind of dropping me high and dry there, but that's the last, that's the last note I have. Again, uh, really enjoyed this, enjoyed this book and, and really recommend it to anyone that has a, a passing interest in, in business at all. I would think it would... Um, it, help you help you with your uh, own stock analysis um, even if you just wanted to buy stocks and uh, Jesus Christ truck um, and um, yeah just kind of um, sharpen your mind uh, in a lot of in a lot of good ways and definitely check out that laugh ridge guy on on Twitter at the very least, if you're not going to audio book this. Cool. All right. That's it for now. And talk to you soon. Bye.